This is a trigger warning from the legal department. Just reminding you that this shit is pretty heavy. And that's okay. Take a deep breath. Don't forget to hydrate. Wash your fucking hands. Well, friends, welcome back to the Revenue Real Hotline. I am delighted to present this conversation today for all with the great Lorena Morales, who is the VP of Marketing over at Go Nimbly and also host of the Revenue Podcast. And this is actually Lorena's and, and my first conversation ever. I, I mean, we've slacked a ton as we've referenced in the conversation, but during my time, de facto co-piloting Rev Genius with Jared Robin, there was a lot of things that we or make decisions around to work on. And one of the things that needed nothing from me, which felt pretty flipping great if, if I'm being honest, was Lorena's podcast and the quality and caliber of the material that she was producing for our 12,000 plus members. And it's annoying because due to that, you know, just smooth operations, we didn't have a conversation ever. But anyway, so here's our, here's our first. And the show notes are pretty comprehensive about what we get into, um, including leveling up the go-to-market collaboration efforts uh, across the board. For anyone that's interested in how to do that, this is the conversation for you. And not only that, we, we connect the dots between the lack of bringing the seller's voice as stakeholders, massive stakeholders to the conversation. And so that I, I think is a pretty beautiful aspect of, of the way that we approach siloing the conversation, Lorena and I. We also get into some pretty real aspects of living and operating as an extraordinary human or with an extraordinary human visa, also known as the H1N1, that I think is pretty brave of Lorena to have, have mentioned. I This is a first for the show because I have, I came into the conversation with pretty limiting beliefs about revenue operations in general, right? Just, and I'm painting, I'm painting with a very broad brush. And so, you know, as I've mentioned a couple of times in, in past episodes, I wanted to do a better job of confronting my own biases that impede progress, really being able to show up in, in a conversation. And I actually disclosed this to Lorena uh, ahead of time. And to her credit, she still came on the show and, and we were able to kind of talk about that. But it's funny because there's a there was a post that Ryan Walsh did about 
compensation, right? Which falls squarely into the RevOps purview and how 80% of sellers do not know how the mechanics of, of their comp plans. And I think there's a function here of, of sellers do, you know, getting far more proactive about finding out. But as someone that helped design consult, a consulting practice around you know, reconfiguring law firm comp plans, right, to move away from that billable hour, incentivizing everyone to take as long as humanly possible. Anyway, then I look at the documentation or lack thereof of comp plans and tech sales. And so I, I know that there's a lot of room for improvement there. With that, I'm just gonna shut up and bring to you this phenomenal woman, this phenomenal Mexican human being. After, of course, I play the LinkedIn DM about, you know, me, me disclosing my limiting beliefs about, you know, her entire profession, which is pretty silly in my book. But anyway, that said, I'm Amy Rehubchek, and this is the Revenue Real Hotline. And thanks for, for joining us on this one. Enjoy. So I'm going back and forth about sharing this thing that I'm about to say, but I've, I'm, well, clearly I've decided to share it. So full disclosure, as a sales enablement person, there's been a transition of moving the department outside of sales ops. And that is a very healthy and positive thing. I mentioned that because my experiences have been with human beings in sales ops that have never sold and, and have whatever I my current perception let's say on a scale of 1 to 10 of the average level of awareness and understanding on what selling is like what it entails what the real problems are how to empower how to enable how to empathize how to ask, not assume, it's a three. At the same time, I'm thinking about how to, you know, create experiences with the podcast and, and confronting some of my own value judgments in a, in a real and hard and public way so as to publicly be wrong is a thing. And so when I say that you're the first, and I can think of no one better, triple, quadruple thank you, thank you, thank you, not only for coming on the show, but for being a bright spot for me to challenge my own negative beliefs that would impede connection and healing and collaboration and all the all the feels with revenue ops like a profession. So thank you again. You're the best. You're the best. I'm excited for the 15th. Lorena, welcome to the Revenue Real Hotline. But I, I just disclosed how ridiculous I must look uh, sitting on the floor in my bedroom. But, you know, the show must go on. So welcome. Thank you for not judging me. Never, never, Amy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So have you listened to any of these episodes? Do you ha do you know what you've gotten yourself involved in? Uh, I mean, I trust you. I have trusted you since since day one. So I think, I think I'm a little nervous because I think you're going to put me in the hot chair from what I've seen. I'm not sure if I am ready, but you know what? I am not afraid of anything in this life, so let's go for it. You know, it's funny. I there, uh, There's a book. 
it was it was recommended and whatever it was a long story of how I got to it it was a book I would never pick up and it's called conversations with, with God and it talks about how every action and it's more of like a universe type thing so very inclusive form of you know spirituality but one of the lines that really stuck with me is that how all actions are either coming from a place of love or from fear and what I just heard is that you were leaning into, since we weren't afraid, we're just leaning into love. And so I'll take that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Let's call it love. Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, happy uh, Immigrants Heritage Month. Did you know that June was was Immigrants Heritage Month? I did not know. it. Like immigration is one of those topics that I that I stay close with the people that that get it. But I generally I don't read the news because it's overwhelming because I am so close to the problem that I feel I could potentially lose my mind. It's too close, yeah. Yeah, that's without saying that I should know about that one. But I'm also super, uh, yeah, I'm like a kid. I get distracted with colors, with movement. So like, yeah, it's kind of hard to focus on one thing. I don't, I don't know anything about that, getting distracted. And it's funny because Anya... Domian, who is a, a Polish immigrant, been in the country for six years. She was two episodes ago, and so we were both laughing how neither of us had known that until earlier that day. So there was some random post. And anyway, that said, target audience, experienced tech sellers. Theme of the show, conversations about uncomfortable conversations in sales. So listeners, I must confess... This is a first for me on this show in that I'm not a big fan of revenue operations in most instances. And when I, so for, for anyone, Lorena, that's listened to a bunch of that, like I've, I've, every time I'm speaking with somebody that agrees with me, I'm like, oh, go human or whatever. It's always like, I'm reminded that I need to do a better job myself, right? Having these conversations. And when I thought about how important it is to bridge the divide on all of the humans that are working together to level up the go-to-market efforts, including revenue operations. There was only one person that came to mind. And so listeners, of course, Lorena was kind enough to come and be on the show. And to her credit, I even shared how I felt a little bit about revenue operations ahead of time. And so you still showed up, which is amazing. With that, I wrote down a bunch of things that we can talk about. The gap, understanding the problem taking down silos, data, 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 Sincari, so many things. But I guess I do you, I, I'm also, I think our, our origin story, even though that there isn't really one other than this is actually our first real conversation, right? We've, we've slacked a ton, but I, I mean, so I guess, where would you like to begin, friend? I think let, let's just start with, with the idea of like silos and, and why they were created and why they are they still exist, if they are a good thing or bad thing. I think there's still a lot of misconceptions around that. And, uh, and especially there's still a lot of blame, which I think if, if the pandemic showed us something is that we need to stop pointing elbows towards each other because ultimately the, the people that are going to feel that are going to be your customers. So we can we kind of start there and then move a little bit towards the other sides. I think that the more complex thing that we're going to touch is data. And that's why I decided to join Syncari as their as advisory board member, a fantastic team, fantastic company. And we're going to talk about that 
in a little bit. But um, do you agree, Amy, that we should start like de-siloing the conversation a little bit? Yeah, you know, I, 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 first of all, there's there's two people involved in this conversation, and so you get just as much of a vote as I do. But I'm frankly, I'm more interested in in um, starting where you'd like to start. And so, yes, I do agree. Silos are perfect. I think that maybe providing a little bit of context for one another would be helpful, maybe a little defining terms so that we are operating with that same baseline so that our yeah. conversation flows with as little, I guess, I don't want and I, you know how annoying it is. Oh, the root cause is communication. Well, what the hell does that even mean? But so, but lack of defining of terms is a good reason for some of the misalignments when we try to show up at human to human. When we're talking about silos on go-to-market teams, which teams are you referring to? Like which, let's scope the conversation. So we've got rev ops, we've got marketing, we've got sales, we've got customer success. I'm assuming, are we including customer success? We are, especially after after these couple of years where customer success is starting to have a place in the revenue conversations. For us in the revenue operations motion, there's two sides, the GTM teams and the operations teams. Ideally, you want both of them to communicate equally, but the thing is like the, the problems and the silos start generally at the GTM level. Okay. So I would also put sales enablement in there. And- so listeners, there's a big transition right now in sales enablement when when the department, I mean, it's still kind of new. It depends on who you ask, but this is, you know, about 20 years ago, this thing that was sales enablement, even though, right, sellers were being enabled really across the board, but Silicon Valley really started to, you know, put a, their own stamp on it. It generally had reported up through sales ops. And we're starting to see a major shift where sales enablement is now reporting directly to the head of sales. And to quote Roderick R.J. Jefferson in his new book, Sales Enablement 3.0, like sales leadership is like the sun. So that shift is happening. And my experience is, so I'm biased, right? And, And as someone that actually sold and sold for a long time and can understand and empathize with the buyer and the buyer's journey, but also the sellers. And so, which is also a a massive stakeholder in these conversations. And then Lorena, just so between, or just so you know, I also have a green belt in process improvement. And so we don't see many of us around. And so when I see a a sales process without validation rules, right? I just, I chuckle to myself knowing the state of their data. And principle one for all processes of which sales and lead flows are one of them is that value flows at the pull of the client. And so whenever I see a process, a sales process that's been designed for the company, it's very obvious that just the bones of the process itself are against the principles of process. With that I would like to turn it back to you so that you know where where I'm sitting and where I'm coming from, both on the the day. Oh, and then also I sold information. So Thompson Reuters and data and like lots of silos, lots of redesigning information to be applied ubiquitously through an organization. And so like you're speaking my love language too. Okay. Now tell us about the problem as you understand it. Oh, there, there's a lot of, of dissecting here because you touch on, on many, many areas. And I think I'm loving this conversation because you come from the from the sales, <laughs> from the sales perspective, purely sales, and then you also understand marketing now. I come from, from exactly the opposite side where I was more on the traditional marketing for eight years out of my 11 years as a marketer. And 
only recently, uh, I would say probably like the past five years out of those uh, 11 years, I've been working with sales and I've been learning the sales language and I've been and I've been involved in sales enablement, as you were saying, because I think historically marketing was just careless about how sales was using the messaging. It was it was this mentality of like, it's not my job. I'm just going to bring a bunch of leads top of the funnel, fixed volume in the hopes that those leads could convert. And so I think when we talk about the problem without going to solutioning or like without going to whose fault it is, <sighs> siloing starts with a conversation that everyone wants to talk about sales and marketing alignment. And for me, it's now a little bit, I'm not going to say annoying, Amy, because I don't think any of, of, of these topics are annoying to me. It's simply for me, it's not that hard. The, the problem with, with, with misalignment started with lead generation programs where the technology didn't allow us to, for example, enrich accounts. So you needed, as marketers, you needed to spend a lot of time creating lists, enriching those accounts, and then processes that were zero personalized. And then after you spend 80% of your time creating those lists and, and hopefully uh, you were not even talking about ICP or TAM or any of the things that today are vital to really approach a revenue team more than a marketing or sales team. And so it started there, lead generation programs. Demand gen was not even in the table. Of course, the misalignment started because you, you bring all these leads they are not qualified because you're trying to push people to a solution that they are either not ready to buy or it's not even of their interest. Mm, mm. Now think about like put on the on the on the shoes on, on this on the sales rep. Of course you're not gonna want to interact with those with those customers. They are not ready. They are not there for you. They are they probably don't even haven't even spent time in your website to really know what's what's all this about. There were no chatbots. Uh, so the misalignment started there. Like, why on earth am I going to spend my time in unqualified leads? No. And then all the way moving, like lead, lead gen was 2004, 2007, all the way. I think. Wait, can I pause you there? Wait. So that's also right when the start of the SDR model came to be. And so like when you were saying about customer success being a new thing, I kind of chuckled, right? Because outside of the Silicon Valley filter bubble, we call it account management. There was entirely like sophisticated teams, each just as skilled. I mean, they worked really closely with sales that were also responsible for upselling the client base. And hell, like even when I was at Thomson Reuters, I had a half and half bag. And so this idea that customer success, and it is a big problem in tech, right? That 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 who's going to own the client revenue? And it's smart business. It's smart to you know, align your department with with revenue, right? Because that generally means more resources when you can grow that number. However, there's nothing new about account management. We just wanted to put a new label on it. And what you're talking about with lead flow, it's almost the, and I didn't think of it until this moment, Lorena, that it was, that's when the SDR model came to be because like I, so I was full cycle from the very beginning. I started in around like 2007 ADP, and so I was responsible for opening up my own opportunities. We were selling like time entry systems. And I, I ended up submitting for like my territory from the government entity responsible for um, time and labor violations as a company for all the companies in my territory that got hit with those violations the year prior and then created a whole marketing campaign around it. And 80% of that list converted. 
And most of the sellers that I know, the greats, the ones that figured it out, despite all this shit around them internally, we know a lot about putting ourselves in target rich environments and putting ourselves in a position where we're front of mind for the buyers so that when they're ready to take on the problem that they knew this day was going to come, that they think of you, which is to your point about um, uh, that misaligned with the leads. But I'm I'm curious when you said that about like the problems with the lead design and the lead flow, well, two ends, like where, where do you think that came from? Right. Cause it definitely started around that time. Like what was the actual problem? Right. So there's a lot of symptoms or issues that get created from a root cause problem, interestingly enough. But then I'm also curious about your understanding of the current state of affairs. Like, I feel like you are far, well, one, you have a much better view from where you're sitting of RevOps, right, on a macro level at Go Nimbly. But also, I I have been working inside communities this year instead of like organizations. And so everyone that's speaking of the improvements through COVID, like I just haven't touched that yet this year. And so like, I'm curious about your understanding of the current state, let's say on a scale of one to 10. So between those two things, what was the original problem and I'm like cough MQLs, cough signups for webinars that nobody like, but those are the the success metrics as designed, right? And so, but anyway, please continue. Well, there, there was not even an MQL because marketing didn't need to qualify anything. That okay. was not our job. Okay. The job was was just like do your do your like bring the bring the people. Mm-hmm. That's it. Like you're going for the click. If they are qualified, I don't care. Still right. gonna take care of that. Gotcha. And to your point. And another huge movement, customer success, you just said it. Customer success was not a department. It was customer support. And so we started to understand the the buyer's journey in the sense of they need us to deal with their problems 24-7. And the realization of there's a difference between supporting tickets and like being all day 24-7 just answering the things that are bothering the customer all the way to how do we really delight the customer all the way to upsell, cross-sell, um, and, and and try to stay in, in the 90s in retention. <laughs> I'm smiling. I was aiming for people to name their firstborn child after me. So I don't know if there is a special <laughs> name for that, but I love that you use customer delight because I used to be like, would you rather be satisfied or delighted? Come on, people, let's pick the right word. Um, but continue. <laughs> yes, yes, because that that's the main thing. Like, when I, I was recently talking to a friend of mine and that person told me, you know what, the way we approach meetings, for example, which is, is something that I can touch about a little further is make sure that your customer, like the meeting with your customer that day is the best meeting that they are going to have through their week. Mm-hmm. So that is delighting. Mm-hmm. That, is, that is something that you can take all the way to how do you sell how do you how do you uh, make sure that again retention is something that not a lot of people are focusing on? I don't. I have no idea why. Like, why are we still spending sixty percent of the marketing budget in net new? Uh, that's that's something. This that makes I no part- sense to me either. I've put up these numbers about how much like how much more we would we would uh, revenue we would. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I'm with you, sister. I am with you there. It, it, it makes it no sense to me either. So I think I think when we talk about like the current state of of of, of the businesses is. Number one, marketing is becoming A's. So the, the marketers are becoming sales, really senior people. And then at the same time, the model of SDR, BDR, AE 
is starting to merge and all of those functions are starting to be more interactive with marketing to the point that a lot of companies, what we're starting to see is, for example, the, the, the BDRs, they don't ask for the content anymore. They run the content. They manage the content. And marketing is only there to say, you know what? Yeah, it's on brand. Go. Uh, so that's that's current. And I think it's it's very happy days for both marketing and sales. Second thing, going back to customer success. Now, customer support is kind of a mini entity of customer success, but customer success developed in this huge machine that is more than happy to come even pre-opportunity to really understand what's what are the pain points of the account and how to make sure that you can cross all and upsell when the time comes. And everything ties to what I was telling you, like how can you really make sure that at every single stage all the way from awareness to advocacy, you are spotting the gaps in the customer journey. And then that you, you need sales, marketing and customer success, all of them. Okay. So, so I, so I'm still, I'm fritzing out at this idea of like customer success being new, because again, it was, it's not, it's just cold account management. It's very, it's very Silicon Valley to put a new label on it and call it new and innovation and like, blah, 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 blah. Nothing could be further from the truth. Same thing with marketing. Like when I was at Thomson Reuters, they would embed a marketer and a product specialist and in on each team that I'm still great friends with because we were so we were always strategizing and collaborating together. And I I think that I'm with you that things are getting better, but I'm also I, I'm less inclined to be to paint with such a broad brush because the things are shit is complex these days. And and frankly, there's you you were in consulting, Lorraine. There's no one magic wand that you can come and wave over a situation. Like it starts with people being able to talk with one another across divides, right? That's step one. Well, not even talk. How about let's start with listen first without mm-hmm. interruption and then be able to talk across divides. But then the second is to identify what the problem is, like what the real problem is. And I think that that's something that we're really far away from in this industry. And I think well, HBR, Harvard Business Review, this is one of their new books. Um, it's called What's What's Your Problem? And like, so in, in process improvement, um, there's two types of projects, right? Design, uh, DMADV, um, for new work, like, so what, let's say we're designing a lead flow just with a blank sheet of paper. So define phase, measure phase, analyze phase, design and verify. And then it's demaic, right? Same three, define, measure, analyze, um, improve and control. So that's for a process that already exists and we're just going to tighten it up. But both of them start with define. And even in measure and analyze, like the their th- first three phases of the project are about let's make sure that we we actually have our fingers on what the actual problem is. And it's almost, it's, I, I'm chuckling remembering one of your episodes. I can't remember which one, but you were using the word band-aids, right? When you step in, especially with data, you step into a situation and there's like fucking band-aids all over the place. And while that is easy and quick and maybe touches on a symptom or an issue, right, quickly, the cost incurred to maintain band-aid after band-aid after band-aid after band-aid I mean, nobody nobody talks about those carrying costs at the when we're just in such a hurry. But I guess when when I was listening to your stuff, I I wasn't expecting to hear someone that understood 
so beautifully the idea of, you know, mastering what the problem is and being able to get into the gaps. And essentially, like when I teach about discovery, I think of like, um, I, I point at like investigative journalism. Why, why, are, why are they so good at uncovering shit? Because they listen for what's not being said. Anyway, so I heard all these things and what you were talking about, and I just loved it. But anyway, what say you about any of, of that? And I said a lot, so and dealer's choice, or we can move on to data too, and Sakari, who and Nick, who I also love. And I'm jealous. I'm going to be on the advisory board. <laughs> I, Nick is fantastic. Nick is one of my favorite people in the tech, um, actually, in like generally in Silicon Valley. Anyways, <laughs> uh, you touch on like pure honey to my ears. Um, the, the beauty, uh, it's almost like an art of listening. I, I think... I am fairly good at it because I am one of the few people that invested real money on formal education to really master these, these tools. And so my, my education in design thinking, Amy, when you think yes, about it, right. design doing, thinking, I forgot. Yes. Okay. I'm sorry. Yes, continue. I am, I am a, a lover. I, I am very passionate about it. I live and love by, by design, human centered design, all these methodologies. Mm-hmm. But what, what, what it goes into is, Simply, when you think about like people interviewing, they don't come from a journalist perspective because generally what happens and what we've seen is, oh, I'm going to interview one of my customers. Okay, here are like the 15 questions that I am going to ask them. And if you think about it, Amy, you are trying to control a conversation that it's not meant to be controlled because you're going to come with biases ultimately with, with those 15 questions. So the way I, I like to, and I, and I would like to, to leave the audience with a piece of advice is, try to come with the less possible questions to the table because you can't really control the way people think. And what you're trying to uncover is, is a muscle, is, is something that you, that you can't simply predict. You can't forecast thinking. You cannot forecast thinking. That's not a thing. Um, what do you mean as- by that? Can you elaborate a little bit more? Yes. So for example, if I am trying to unveil um, a churn problem, I can't come with questions that I have already asked seven of my customers, because again, every single human is a different mind. So what I am- You're assuming that we're actually asking our customers shit. Well, assuming that exactly. Yeah, okay. I'll be happy if we're we're having a conversation (laughs) with the customers or the sellers to understand what their fucking problem is, then that's a win in my book. But uh, let's get get solid with the qualitative, uh, you know, design, please continue. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Yes. Fair. Fair. Please, first of all, talk to your customers. Please, 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 please. (laughs) And your sellers too. Stop assuming me. You wouldn't believe they have conversations with your buyers all damn day. Hey, guess what? They know a little bit about what they're thinking too and what they're experiencing and the pain points and how the market is shifting. So let's talk yeah. to them too. Okay, please continue. And and this is a yes and. It's yes to your point and your customers' customers. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So anyways, assuming that you do want to do the hard work and you want to interview your customers, what I am saying on, on you can really uh, forecast thinking is if I am trying to unveil the way you think in me and the way you understand the world, why on earth I am gonna I am gonna try to control the conversation? What, why 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 do we assume that we can control a mind? Because what, what you are doing by coming with a with a set list of questions is you are trying to get the answers that you want, not the answers that you need. So let, let's dig into that one for a second. Um, hmm. 
Okay. So I'm like thinking, so I distinguish between sales leaders and sales bosses. Mm-hmm. And then I think about venture capital and the incessant chasing after unicorns mm-hmm. and the rushing. And, it, you know, I'll even bring this up further because this counts for shareholders too. Like there's a, there's a immediate gains versus, you know, long-term relationships with customers formed. But I, most of the sellers that I speak to, when they are given a list of questions that they're supposed to ask and how they're supposed to fucking ask it, that's not their choice either. Nope. Nope. No, because we are not trained. We are not trained to be uncomfortable because you. The, so, the who's unco- so who's it? Sorry to interrupt, but who's uncomfortable in this scenario of letting go of the old way of doing things? And the answer here is sales managers. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, but I think this is a, a, a this is a theme. It's not only sales. It's also I've seen it with with account managers where they they don't know how to ask the right questions, open-ending questions, <laughs> questions that are not going to have like um, just single answers. Right. Because those are hard. You need to come with 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 the ability to okay, if there's an awkward silence, it's totally okay. Potentially, the person is thinking, and you need to allow to that space to happen. But I think as humans, we are very um, we are very kind of educated to if there's a silence, there's something wrong and you need to feel and you need to fill in and you need to jump in and you need like the, the, the constant talking needs to be happening because otherwise there's something wrong with you or you are a bad interview uh, interviewer. And I think it's time to change that because if design thinking shows you something is that the, the, the ability to use your ears and your mouth in that proportion is something that is really hard to, to teach and it's really hard to learn because it comes from how you're family educated. Like it, it does come with, with certain heavy background on like who you are as a person and who you are as, as a, like, like apart from business, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's funny. I'm, I'm laughing. I'm taking, so anyone that's interested in, in having deeper, better conversations during discovery, that's Jeff Bajork does discovery episode three. I believe mercy. And I also get into that on mercy manifest magnificent, magnificent scale. I mean, even Dave White said, Lauren, I'm laughing because you're touching on things that we talk about almost every single time and listeners design thinking and process design, like the, the methodologies and the training and the facilitation skills or uh, Lorena, would you agree with me, but kind of similar? Yes. Yes. and no. they are different beasts, but, but, but those are like, they are go, they, they go hand to hand. They are almost like cousins. Right. Okay. So that's good. So cousins. All right. I'll, I'll take that one. Okay. So I'm, I'm laughing because there was a, I had a meeting right before this with this dude that I had never met. And I was kind of mad at myself because I'm messing with my flows and Calendly and normally like to give yourself buffers. And it was, it slipped through the cracks, right? So somebody booked something right before this, this interview or this conversation, because I don't do interviews either. And it was a dude that heard me do a podcast and it had to do with inbound lead, or lead flows. And I was talking about how the abysmal state of win rates um, on some of these leads. I didn't look up 
um, him. I didn't look up the company. I wanted to just show up in the conversation. But at the same time, I was also a little irritated that I did not get to, you know, prepare questions like I normally would have for you, Loretta. And so, but now, and to hear you saying this, so like, you're, you're almost like, uh, uh, anyway, I'm smiling and I wanted to let you in on the little joke that it was just, if you could have been a part of my world all before this, like it was all of these things exactly just happened just like that. And here we are in a real conversation. Okay. So I wanted, I, there's just one final thought I want to add in and get your take on, or, you know, your choice to move to either data. And then you, I want to talk visas for a second, because you said something that I really, I want to go back to and um, how to develop some of these skills, maybe is a good place. But anyway, so when I, when we hear talk of the sales humans being treated as cogs, right? In an industrial wheel. When That was one of the hardest things that I found out when I switched to sales enablement, right? How pervasive that thinking was. And then I look at sales ops or revenue ops or whatever it's called, like the, like the legacy version, not the beautiful, shiny, like amazing collaborative human version that you represent. And I, and <laughs> I, that we are not problem solvers, that we do not know how to manage our time, that we are need to be fixed. And then I see like the designs of the processes and in conversations with sales ops humans that I, I mean, there's a difference, right? Between learned experience versus lived experience. I haven't met many people that have been able to empathize with the sales experience without having sold. You're in exclusion. Like you don't count. Like obviously this is, but I feel like um, when we talk about visas, you know a lot about selling, frankly, my friend. But anyway, I, I'm hopeful that things are going to get better for my people. But I also, I, I'm glad even that we're talking about the buyer's journey and awareness is being step one. And, you know, when the buyer has the problem, that's when the deal should start, not when we want it to start. But at the same time, I don't, I don't hear enough of us talking about, you know, the seller's experience and how, when we inject more art and creativity and autonomy and, you know, back into the mix that those benefits then get passed back to the clients as well. And what, what would you say about that? I think it was, sales had this kind of a scarlet letter where it was a dirty profession. I, I'm sorry, but, but, but like you did have these cliche. I'm laughing. You think it's past tense? Because that would be great. Let me come sit by you because I, I still see us as uh, showing up on the least trusted profession list. Depending on the organization and, and, the, and the level, but what we're starting to see in SaaS is sales are becoming these kind of almost curators where sales only jumps in when the, the buyer is ready to be held, like holding hands with a human. And so that elevates the sales profession automatically. Like the salesperson is not the person that is careless anymore, that they don't care about uh, like if they are lying to the customer or like whatever it takes to come up with a, with a triangle, the, the resistance or like the resources. This is a triangle of selling, a fantastic book for everyone that is in marketing that wants to learn a little bit of sales. Wait, what's the book? Uh, what's the book? The, 
the, the selling triangle. Got um, it. Okay, continue. And so the main idea of the book is like, you need to move from the three R's, uh, resistant resources and, uh, uh, and I think it's reasons or something. And so you need to be able to pivot between the three of them and kind of jump uh, here and there. So I think to your point is like, I do talk in past tense because I, in the most sophisticated revenue uh, teams where you already see a CRO and you already see a, at least a RevOps manager, the salespeople, even if it's the SDR, they are not the, the people that were just there to whatever it takes to close the deal. That's not the case anymore because you are starting to see new compensation models where marketing is added to the, to the table where like if sales doesn't win, marketing doesn't win either. If, <laughs> if sales doesn't win, nobody wins. Nobody wins. Nobody wins. But I'm la I'm so I'm laughing. We may have to agree to disagree because that's how I've I was raised by a salesperson and who okay. turned broker, right? So he's a broker. I've been around the empowerment of salespeople my entire life. And I also have been a top performer my entire life. And so when I and I only mention that because when you're at, at President's Club and when you're interacting with top performers, the majority of them are like me and like my dad that are selling and in it for the human beings and the value that can be delivered and created through that relationship. Now I'm with you on the stigma and I'm with you on, you know, bringing humanity back into selling seems to be trending up. However, those of us that had, well, one, it's, it's, always been a thing but when in order to get there as a human being as a seller you have to transcend the bro culture you have to transcend the coffee is for closers and these are the cultures and so you almost have to learn how to one no one's teaching you how to do it which is why sales enablement is so important the right way um teaching coaching mentoring um but also that's what the profession is supposed to be and that's for those that have been learned how to excel, that's how and why they've been excelling. And so like, it's just, it's, I'm, I'm delighted that we're talking about it, but I think of some of the reasons why there's stigma around the, the title. And I think one, the people, the human beings that we burn through may have something to do with it. It could be the children and the spouses that are also going through the roller coaster swings because we do not bring mental health into the conversation at all that are also, so there's like a generational, like there's ripple effects. It could be the, you know, I like think of the scripts that we just hand people and force them to do cold calls. Like We've earned our reputation, but it's the profession and the human beings operating in it. The ones that were, you know, I, I, they're very different things to me. And when I think about what the problem is and where the path forward is, it's, it's more on, this is where enablement and, and telling stories, um, like using up a microphone and podcasting is a, is a good place to start. And I know that you are so far part of the solution here. And so thank you for that. But <laughs> Um, okay, so I'm looking at the clock here. I, I, I'm going to pivot us here. Do you mind? Your, did you? Just one last thing, sure. because I, I think you like to this point on like um, why it has changed. You are so right. And I, I want to shout out to you in, in here, because I think also why I, I think this, this is changing is simply because you didn't see women in sales. <laughs> and so when, when, when we're starting to see people <laughs> like you, like Beck Holland, being the, the voices of sales enablement, 
that's when you started to break the bro culture where, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to say it. Yes, women are more more emotional. Guess what? It's a good thing. No, we, we all have fucking emotions. Like it is a part of the human experience. We're just more <laughs> accustomed to talking about it and acknowledging the facts. But that said, I also, I empathize with men. Um, but you're right. 85% of our sales leaders, especially in the tech space, are white men. No offense, white men, just throwing out some numbers. When we can look it up upstream, even the venture capital dollars, 97% two years ago went to white men. Last year it was 98%. And so, yes, injecting more um, diversity of thought, experience, and whatever. So, but I'm sorry, continue. Please finish your thought. That's it. That's all I, I wanted to say, and not to, to that point. We can now talk about data, like as our last curse here. Oh no, no, I'm, 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 I'm I plan on squeezing two more in here, my friend. So you know. <laughs> um, all right. So we'll. Oh gosh. When you you shared about, I can't remember which episode that I listened to. Oh, and I'm also I'm very interested about Rev Genius. Um, do you remember the first time we met? It was you were looking for humans, uh, like the, you wanted to bring disabilities into yes. the conversation, right? And that was the first one. And I had like just had a conversation yesterday with um, Francisco, actually, whatever. So I think that was the first time that we met and you were like, do you know of anyone? I'm like, yes, I do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you were already out there hosting. And as somebody that's kind of going through uh, for the first time in a very long time, a, a learning curve as as steep and as unforgiving as podcasting. Like I'm interested about that and and the RevG stuff, but also so back to the visa thing and then the data thing. But you said something about how. Wait, I gotta find it. I did write this one down. Hold on. <laughs> Um, freedom. When you got your green card, you were allowed, you had more ability to make decisions about where to work and what to do. And so um, listeners, for those that are not familiar, when you are not operating with a green card, you have to deal with visas and companies that are going to sponsor your visa. And so, I, I mean, Lorena, I think of my university, I went to American University and like all of my friends that were there on a, a student visa, like it just, I could not understand how they would be forced. And so, and then having to, to, okay, I understand the nature of visas and I loved the word freedom with the green card, but I guess for our listeners that don't know what that feels like or have never spoken to someone about what that feels like, why don't you talk to us a little bit about that and the freedom that came with making choices afterwards, but tell it like, sob, like not sob story, but you know how it goes like tension, release, tension, release, kind of marketer. <laughs> I, I feel it's a topic that on purpose, I didn't speak a lot about because I feel like the moment that as humans, we feel pain, our brains kind of block them. Uh, and then you kind of, that, that's how you keep going because you don't remember the amount of pain. And so you're willing to get more and more and more uncomfortable. I think that the thing with the visa is we tend to be victimized because it is, it is damn hard. You are, you are talking about a process that takes a lot of investment monetarily and time-wise. And even if, if the company has decided to invest in you, it's still a, a lock thing because it's a raffle. And so, and, and, and more, when I started the, the H-1B, for those that, that don't know what is the H-1B. Wait, H-1B one, is that the extraordinary human one? 
Wait, oh is God, that I the mean, one that you have? You, you're an extraordinary human. God damn it. I, I wish I, mm, there's a part of me that's like, I really wish that I could be an extraordinary human. Um, okay. H1, okay. Please continue. I'm sorry. I'm very oh my excited. God, I'm, I'm, I'm dying right now. I think that's how I'm going to call it now. The extraordinary <laughs> human. Uh, it's such a specialization visa. So yes, you need to prove that you are better than at least 10 Americans. Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, Wait, listeners, listeners. So this is when, if you're a company and you're looking for a certain set of skills, like this is a very special visa that um, you you actually have to prove that it's it's very difficult to find this this you know perfect storm of skills in the United States. And so, and then to then anyway. So uh, obviously, we're speaking to an extraordinary human here, friend. So I'm just going to be. In fact, I'm just going to go on mute now. Here we go. I don't know if it's if it's an extraordinary thing. I think it's a combination between knowing when and how to ask for things and then prove you, yourself because everything is about you need to keep proving yourself over and over and over again and there's people that are not happy with that for me i think my life i've been i've been the person that enjoys proving people that they are wrong and that i'm going to do better and because i have heard so many no's in my life that at some point i said i'm going to look for the yes and the yes it is. Remember I said the, the selling and the visa? I knew we'd get to it. See, Lorraine has heard lots of no's. You may as well be a salesperson too. Okay. A, a lot of no's. <laughs> I and and not even getting paid for that because salespeople get no's, but you're getting paid for that. Um, I just I just I was there uh going through the entire thing. There's been five different companies that were that were willing to invest in me. And what I thought at the very beginning was uh a weakness because I couldn't stay in one single company because especially in the startup world, you run out of funding, uh, you don't understand marketing, you're working for a CEO that doesn't believe in marketing. So you need to change jobs and you need to transfer that visa. So what it takes is a lot of patience, a lot of deep human connections, because if you think that, that you need networking to sell a deal, you need more networking to stay in a country that it's not yours. Times at 20,000. 20,000 X. Yes. And so it's been, it's been quite of a journey. And the moment that I stopped depending on an H1B visa, it's a moment that, and, and, and again, people, my process is not done. I still don't know if I'm going to be able to stay in this country. And it is heartbreaking for me to wake up every morning and that I have built a house and I have my partner here and I have my friends and to know that that can be ended any time just because a government doesn't supply the resources for people that want to make a living, it's it's soul-breaking. Uh, I just threw up in my mouth. Okay, so we're going to talk more about that offline because I think I can... Uh, you make a lot of friends in legal um, sometimes. Anyway, so... I want to go back to something that you said that I thought was so brave and that was victimized. And so right off, so I'm, I'm on, this is the first time I'm touching on this word in this, in this, in this show. So I'm, I thank you for being the first to bring it up. There is a, a has, I've observed a hesitancy to share stories where we have been victimized because the tendency upon hearing said story is to point at said person and label them a victim or trying to be a victim. And it is so common a reaction that we just avoid the word in general. So number one, there is a big fucking ass difference between 
being victimized at some point, which is frankly a, a I think an experience that a lot of us can relate to more more than than we acknowledge right across divides. Then when sharing a story and being a victim or harboring a victim mentality, big fucking difference. And so when I'm when I talk about facilitating conversations or creating spaces where um, harm is acknowledged or shared or conflict is resolved in a perfect world, that is <laughs> that is that is one thing that I I I've got a taboo buzzer right. There is there is a difference between being victimized and being having a victim mindset. And so when you friends are hearing a story or you hear that word, I would I would strongly encourage each and every one of us, myself included, to not jump in our brain straight to this person is a victim, this person is a complainer, because then it impedes our ability to converse about shitty situations like Lorena just shared. Okay. So now back to back to the conversation. <sighs> Man, um, I thought I knew what I was going to ask, and then you said that your your situation isn't is still not resolved. Like, what's going on with the green card? Like, why isn't it? Are you talking about like a another you know MAGA rocking you know douchebag who grabs women by the pussy coming in to like change laws, or is there other laws on the dock like that are you're concerned about? It has to do with with the government, for sure. Uh, well, so both of those are government related. Is it a politician or are, are you aware of any laws coming down or being proposed that are going to impede your ability to stay in your fucking house? It's about policies and, pro and processes mm -hmm. in, in this country. Um, I don't think it has, to, finally, it doesn't have to do with a human per se, mm -hmm. which, is, which is something that was very F up. Uh, through through my entire here in in, in the U.S., um, it, it's just about the, the policies and how to fight a case and how to make sure that the government understands that you are a citizen or not a citizen, a, a resident that has been paying taxes and that is responsible and that etc. etc. Et so I I can't talk a lot about it right now because it's just it's a little too hard. Different. Yeah, it's too hard. Okay. All right. So we're good. We'll change the subject. I thought I think it was very brave of you to engage in this part of the conversation. And um, we don't talk about it enough. And so thank you. And we're you and I are we're we're, we're going to circle back to that. <laughs> okay, so now back to let's talk data. Let's talk about how great Sincari is, Lynn and Nick, and like what was it about your work? Whether it was you know when did you fall in love with data? Let's start with that. I think it was a uh because because revenue operations. I mean, I know your perspective. I mean, but uh, you, you're, I I think a lot of people are going to agree with me that without proper data oh no no no! i'm pro data like no one likes data more than me and i in fact my favorite metric is the learning indicator my jobs and i am able to control for knowledge retention because i use data and they're not mutually exclusive yeah um but um i what i don't like is uh well something different but data this is my my soapbox man but i want to hear how you're you're falling in love story I, I I was not a revenue marketer before going in Blee. So I was reporting on, on vanity metrics through my entire career. And so when I started to see the problems that our customers had, everything from dedupes and like really make sure that your data is clean and kind of scrubbing the data and like massaging it, et cetera, et cetera. 
I started to see how to really operationalize companies based on the on the fundamentals, and that's really having data stewardship as part of the culture. And so I didn't get in touch with Syncary until probably like two years after I was at GoNimbly, where I met their CRO as a personal friend. And he talked to me about the company and I said, wow, this is really a solution where you can unify your entire data system. Um, because even if you're a company in series B, your systems are, are start gonna be complicated. Like people talk about culture changing when you, when you hit hyper growth stages. Why nobody talks about the changes that are gonna happen in your systems? I don't get it. Like you are gonna be better and more, um, effective if you understand that the same way that your culture is going to change because you're not going to be the same company that you were in series A that than what you're going to be in series C, the same happens to your systems. You're not going to have the, the same amount of people dealing with, with your sales uh, automation tool or your marketing automation tool. Uh, that alone, plus the fact that people are changing careers. So when we talk about marketing operations and sales operations, those are really, really expensive roles to invest in, not only because now they are the strategic people that are starting to make decisions, but also because they own the tool stack yeah. and your tool stack is your That's revenue. so fucking funny because you just brought us right back to the damn silos. Part of the problem is that we think about data, like think about it's client data, right? Lives in the CRM, financial data that's owned by finance and it's over in some like accounting software. We've got product data, we've got HR data, we've got you know, within law firms, right, where the product was actually the experience of the attorneys, you've got the experience data, like, and the data, and even the way that the software was designed was was built and designed in silos. And so to your question, at least from where I'm sitting, the reason that no one is, it's still brand new. And it's also why Nick is yet again, category defining, Nick is the CEO of Syncari, everyone. And I owe him an email. Nick, I owe you an email. I'm sorry. But anyway, I, um, I'm a massive fan because when it, when, so I, I say all the time that selling information, selling data, like just changed me as a person, like, especially when you get people to pay a lot of money for it. But like (laughs) when, when you're talking about information design, design Mm -hmm. thinking, you and you think about how like the end users. So first of all, like data, it's it moves, right? It no longer sits in a static like pond. It's moving all the time. And the term when you're able to design or like transcend silos and design like merge all the data together. So client data, right, really lives in all these different places, right? From who pays their bills on time and who, you know, downloaded a white paper, like, and who, you know, participated in what, you know, bug spotting issue that product had, whatever. So there's client data all over the place. When you put it together and then you start to think about the business decisions that need to be made on the back end by the company, by the organization, which is part of, I think the other part of the problem is that we're, we're not even there yet. So when you think about the business decisions that need to be made by whom and when, then you can start to think about how to design the data in a ubiquitous manner, which means that it's customized for that end user group. And that's when the decisions that are made based on, you know, the the new information that's available, that's when everything starts to lift. And so I think it's a bunch of things. It's about the software is designed in silos. There wasn't anything like Sincari before Nick. And so that's helping tremendously to kind of um, 
allow for information to move in ways that it didn't before. I think that, well, what say you on those things? Oh, and then of course, we're not, there was a study and it's one of my featured posts on LinkedIn. It's like, it said something that like, you know, 95% of sales leaders say that data is important, but like less than 18% actually use it. And so I'm sure like the quality of the data and maintaining the information in the dupes is an issue, but validation rules, validation rules. But anyway, so, but if you're not, if you haven't started to process how data is a tool to support the business decisions and the business decisions are something that happen often, including the choice to do nothing day after day after day, like that's where those are, in my opinion, where the real problems come from. But I'm not on Sincari's like advisory board. So you tell me. <laughs> I'm dead serious, though. You tell me. What are you seeing? I, I am seeing that. I mean, for, for example, there, there were solutions before Sincari on integrations like how to make sure that your systems talk to each other. However, what was what, what is, I think, unique about Syncary is it's truly a 360 solution where like it can it can start as, as something as simple as, well, no, it's not simple, erase that. But it can start at, at something as tactical as let's clean your data. And that's not even their main offering. Uh, but, but it goes all the way to to really like doing doing like lead scoring and like like managing those processes that you generally have another tool just for that. Yeah. Okay. So I we got to bring Nick on the show because like when we were <laughs> there, we were looking at data tokens for uh, member to be able to do like a Grammarly email strategy, right? So yeah. pulling from a customized experience in a community setting, and so Syncart like. Uh, yeah. Okay. So Nick, I'm, yeah, yeah. We're, we're going to talk deeper on Sankari, but Lorena, I have a, we've got a couple of minutes here left and I want to ask what is the hardest conversation that you've ever had to have in a revenue realm? And this could include hiring manager, boss, peer, significant other, buyer, whatever, fill in the blanks, but like, let's get real. Like what's the hardest, most uncomfortable conversation that you've ever had to have? I think for me, it was when we decided to implement an account-based motion and I didn't have the perspective of how the sales jobs were going to be impacted. I didn't understand at the very beginning that we had to move from a a sales cycles of 45 days all the way to six months. Mm -hmm. And so that conversation, that was really hard because I had to understand that our sales team were depending on like, how am I going to sustain my family if my compensation plan is going to change? So, so they got the idea of like, this is going to be worth it because the value of the ACBs is going to be higher or the uh, average contract ba- values for those that don't know. But I, I think that was one of the hardest ones because I came from a selfish position where like marketing has always been incentivated with a base salary. So you really don't, don't look into comp models. And so when I had that conversation with the sales team, I had to come from an empathetic type of perspective on saying, okay, how, how am I going to make sure that this change that is going to impact their personal lives is worth it? And how can I explain the value of it? I think that was one of the toughest ones in my career. Wow. Wow. I like, I legit, I have the chills right now. I re- like, we were just talking about this about, wow. Okay. Wow. Like, seriously, do you see the chills, <laughs> the goosebumps? Wow. Shit, man. Um, that was excellent. Yeah. I like okay. Do you have a hard stop here? Or can I ask a follow-up question? Like, do you can you go five minutes over or are we done? Let's go five minutes. 
Okay. So tell me, I want to hear more about like, so what Lorena is describing about shifting an organization from like a tradition, like a more standard go-to-market approach to an ABM. Like this is, this is the skeleton of the go-to-market, everything in it. Yeah. Everything is impacted. The the tools, the training, the compensation, the how you sell, the the what the buying experience. It I I mean it there's nothing that doesn't get impacted. And to your point, it's not you don't see that part of the change management aspect of ABM and a lot of like the ABM content. And so to hear you say that, but anyway, I need I I I need more detail on the realness or the uncomfortableness for you during that initiative, which I'm chuckling that you're talking about org change, right? Organizational change. So it doesn't get bigger and more uncomfortable than that. But like, what what was it about understanding how real that change was for the sales team that was, you know, made it the first thing that you thought of when I asked about uncomfortable conversations? And then like some details, please. Because I, I I think Amy, I pride myself on on not being a selfish person. There, there's a reason why I have growth teams successfully in the in the past seven years, and I think it's because I deeply care about my people and my and my teams. And so when I had to have the conversations with people that were ultimately not reporting to me, so I was not responsible for them, and I understood that my work was impacting their lives negatively at the very beginning. Um, because that's the thing with change. You don't know if that change is going to bring good stuff right away. Probably you're not going to see the results until years later. And so for me, it was really hard to, to see that I was being selfish. I was just thinking about marketing. I was just thinking about how to create this fancy new machine that I was learning about because I fell in love with account base since I learned the methodology. And when when I hit the the wall of like, wait a minute, this is not a you thing. This is a, a revenue team thing. And your job is secondarily here because there's other people that are going to be impacted tomorrow. How are you going to deal with that? It, it made me, it made me rethink the way that I was approaching change in an organization. Um, and I'm never going to forget that because I, I had to understand and ask the right questions in order for people to say, to be confident, because I mean, nobody wants to have the the uncomfortable conversations about money. Money is one of those things that nobody wants to talk about because it's so damn hard. Um, But when when you force people to say like, hey, tell me the real motivations of why you don't wanna do this or why you do wanna do this. And when money comes in, it's a conversation that generally falls into personal interests. Well, you hit it on the head when you said, this is how we're going to support our children. <laughs> and I'm laughing because we, we covered the money thing in the, in the mercy episode, but I, my dad has financial services brokerage. So you think about uncomfortable conversations with buyers, like try sitting down with the spouses that are hiding things from one, one another, oh. weird avoidance issues. We're like some really fierce value judgments that vary drastically from person to person, but you're spot on. However, the bigger thing that I took away from what you just said is that it was a mistake. And isn't it funny how we learn so much more from our mistakes than we do our wins? Yes, because those are the ones that, because it's so easy to believe the bad things rather than the good things. Well, I, is it, if that, if I follow that logic through, or if I heard that properly, which is probably a me issue, 
that would suggest that we spend more time thinking about mistakes than our wins. But I, I don't think that's the case because it's so painful or because they're stigmatized, right? That, or there's shame around them, or, you know, it's so much more fun to talk about all the wins that we've had or how we keynoted a super conference or what, like it. And so, but, but as someone that's now in adult learning, you know, we learn, we don't learn from our wins. Not, I, I mean, we learn from our mistakes. And so I guess with that, what, what did you learn? How did you approach organizational change, right? Ripping out the skeleton of an organization and putting it back together so that no one, no one's children, like, you know, lose their, their dinner. Um, how, what did you learn from that experience and how have you approached um, like enterprise wide change differently moving forward? The first thing that I learned was not to make promises that you can't keep. Mm-hmm. Again, the, the idea that I can't, I mean, because account-based was, was a new thing for us. Nobody, mm-hmm. nobody had the expertise before. I was the first one that got certificated. Mm-hmm. It was an experimentation for the entire company in 2018. And so what I learned was exactly that. Like, no, there's no reason why you should jump into something, even if it's the best strategy, without having a conversation with the, with the people that are going to affect Yay. We call those stakeholders and it's, it's, it's a part of define phase and I'm sure design thinking too, but like we tend to have very limited scope when, when putting together our list of who the stakeholders are. And then even if they make the list, we make assumptions about what they need and what they want and what's important to them. And you know what they say about assumptions, friends, um, but yeah, you're, you're spot on. I'm sorry, please continue. I just got so excited. No, one... <laughs> no, that, that's, that's, uh, that's what I have to, to bring to, to that topic. And for listeners, this is the same thing with buyers or buying teams. When you're venturing into different departments, when you are coaching your champions on how to work with, uh, you know, the customers, you know, peer departments, this is, these are the things that you have to coach in and work with your buyers to understand too, that we don't make assumptions based on what our peers need, what our other stakeholders need. And so just, but our buyers are also human. And so there's a lot of, there's not a lot of practice, there's stigma, there's, you know, probably some legacy bad feelings about what whatever. And so being able to coach and work with your your buyers to support them while they go and have these questions or have these conversations with stakeholders ahead of deals, those impact your win rates in very positive ways. And so it's it's always fun to to make sure that you know we don't do this while selling either. Okay, last question. One piece of advice for our listeners about uncomfortable conversations. First, go to the people that you trust to receive feedback on the blind spots that you might be having. Practice there, practice often, and then go to your peers because we tend to have resistance against feedback. And even though every single organization is going to tell you that they do feedback actively, we are not used to it. So my recommendation is like practicing your safety net. Go to a friend, go to a colleague that you have met 10 years ago and that you are not working with directly, ask them, what are the blind spots that I am missing here? Is there something that I can do around? Uh, I, I don't know, like go and ask them for feedback on your last podcast or on your last article on your last email, go and practice there and then be open to, to feedback with your, with your current colleagues. 
It's so funny. That was the the calm app. That was the daily meditation today. Was on. Um, I, I don't want to use the word criticism, but you're spot on, right? Blind spots. And that, frankly, it's, and this is Maria Bross, who is a young woman that I mentored this this past year. She's landed at a, she's a, a big time sales leader now. Anyway, she said that she is able to feel less afraid of that feedback because she's more concerned about harboring blind spots. And the idea of like blind spots, which are by definition, we're unaware of them, that becomes a bigger issue than whatever it is that we're going to, we're going to hear. But it's so funny that you said that you started with go to someone you trust and then to go to peers, because that when, when some of the early data about returning to work right now, and this is from Andy Paul is talking a lot about this, um, that it's not the manager employee relationship that is in jeopardy with this next normal, like it's the peer to peer relationships. And so I've been thinking really deeply about cultivating trust um, in, in peers. But anyway, I'm sure you and I have a lot. We could talk about that offline too. <sighs> All right, Lorena, do you have any cool things coming up by way of projects or that you are excited about and want to share with listeners that the turnaround time, let's say is just like a week, let's say. And also where can people find you? People can find me where everyone is right now, LinkedIn. Just go and look for me, Morales Lorena. You're going to see my lovely face there. And then the project that I am working on that it's very exciting right now is making a marketer. It's a show that we have in YouTube. Uh, I'm going to have very interesting guests with me. So just stay tuned because it's coming. Wait, making a marketer. Oh my gosh, this sounds awesome. What, when is the, do you, have you pinned like a launch date yet? And I, you need to tell me more about this thing. Like if you can do two minutes on this, like I, what is this cool thing you speak of? I'll send it to you. We actually relaunched it uh, like two, three weeks ago. Okay. So the main thing is like telling the story about marketing. The first relaunch is like very, I added the touches of me being a Mexican and like what is exactly revenue operations, but I'm going to change the path a little bit. And we're going to talk about what is marketing, the evolution of marketing. And I'm going to bring all the A stars in each one of the departments. My first guest is a woman that has been doing fantastic things, uh, very young, but very, very um, passionate about conversational marketing that's all i can say right now okay okay don't give it away but send it so i when you do send it to me uh, listeners I'll, I'll put whatever i can get out of lorena i'll put that in the show notes i'll send it <laughs> um and okay so anyway thank you so much for coming on cold like this not cold but like yeah thank you for for spending time with us and listeners thank you for hanging around for the remainder of the conversation uh it means the world truth love and joy friends and happy selling Thank you, Amy. <laughs> Bye. Ooh. Man, that was heavy. But necessary, you know, important, important stuff being thrown around. Virtues that we as humans can build a sturdy foundation on. I heard words like trust. I heard words like action. I heard words like consistency. And uh, I think this is important. But I, I also live in the real world, right? Where I trust that the action Amy didn't take was to consistently feed the dog or file her legal disclaimer paperwork from all the unnecessary risks she takes on a weekly basis. 
Karen is going to be pissed. Karen! All right, friends. The only way this works as a hotline is if we find some people to come play. Anybody who's interested or brave enough or desperate enough, because let's be serious, that's where it's at. Everything you need to know is in the show notes. Yeah, call absolutely. Call in. Don't have enough to do? You want a couple of books to read? Maybe we can boss you around for a couple hours? Yeah, please. By all means, call. If you like what you're hearing or are excited for this shit show and where it's going to go, definitely follow us on whatever podcast device is your preference, even though I, I seriously have a hard time identifying with anything non-Spotify, but you know, I guess I'll come to terms with that. If you find any value in things that we're talking about, do tell a friend. I consider that the highest honor. Of course, there's always the public review of any kind, although part of me thinks that I should not ask that until we're out of beta. Just a note for sponsors from Karen and Pete down in Legal, we are anxious to receive your call. And if you are looking to help or join the cause or create change in a positive way, please reach out to anyone but me because I have enough to do. And Amy will definitely be interested in taking your money to help more people, which is what we do here. You know, stuff, legal stuff. You know, it's pretty crazy. I still can't believe people listen to shit I say. Yeah, like there, there's certainly a kernel of truth somewhere in there, but you know, it's, it's just, it's wrapped up in a story. Order the dog food, Amy. Order it. Chewy.com. Possible sponsor. Lola, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, baby. I love you. Here, take some pets. Come come sit up on my lap. I don't know about you listeners, but I enjoy my podcast on Stitcher. I mean, I don't have a premium account because I'm holding out for sponsorship. Hey, Stitcher, looking at you. Also, I believe we mentioned Chewy, so there will be a link to them in the show notes, even though we are not sponsored by them, and I bought my dog food at Target this week because it was on sale and I saved on shipping. All right, friends, thank you for listening to the conversation. For more ridiculousness, check out the extended cut of the outro, and that's a wrap. I can't, I can't, I can't. So this is Pete. Your disclaimer specialist coming to you at the super secret disclaimer portion of the show because this is a pod about transparency and difficult conversations. And with everyone being so open and honest, um, I must be. So here goes. Um, as the outroer to the outroee, I'm sorry. I apologize. You know, I, I misled you intentionally. As your attorney, I must confess that I am not a fucking attorney. Um, I have not passed the bar exam in the state in which I live. I uh, have never represented anyone well in anything, let alone in a court of law. Um, but again, these are difficult conversations that we're, Amy's having with, with her guests, and, and I lied. And I should tell you that. I should be open and honest because, you know, we have been. So... We can all be better. We can all do better together. And now I'm just rambling at this point. It's just, who cares? It's an outro, right? Like, this is just going to fade into blackness like the Mars rover. Maybe 
a little bit less sad. That was fucking sad. Oh, let's not be that sad. Come on, guys. We can do better.